The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. We are now on week two of the one sermon that I prepared for last week. Just to give you a reminder of kind of the context, if you aren't here, Jesus had just lost about 15,000 of his disciples And his brothers come to cheer him up and they say, hey, the Feast of Booths is coming. You need to come to Judea. You need to campaign. You need to let everybody know who you are so that your disciples might follow you, so people might run after you. And so they tell him to come down and to campaign. And Jesus denies their request at first, but then at the prompting of the Heavenly Father, comes down midway through the feast. And that's where we're going to pick up the passage today. So we are in John 7. We're going to start in verse 14. Read down to verse 31, and then we'll read a little bit after that as well. John seven fourteen. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And your circumcision is, uh, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many other people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done. Let's get down and read verse 37 through 39. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, but Jesus... Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, pray that we would sit under it, that we would be conformed to it, that it would transform us through your Holy Spirit. 
that you would illumine our hearts, you would illumine our minds to see the truths that you have for us, these great truths, these wonderful truths, these difficult truths, and that our life would be forever changed because of what we see in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to start by recapping last week. So if you're here and you forgot, or if you were not here, we'll just all get on the same page. How about that? So last week, we talked about this question, who is Jesus? When Jesus came to the feast, there was a murmur among the people. Everyone was asking, who do you think Jesus is? And there was a lot of speculation out there. Well, last week we saw that there are two impossible options. There are two improbable options, and there is one inescapable option. The two impossible options were this, that Jesus is merely a myth or Jesus is a myth or a legend. A legend meaning that Jesus didn't really exist. Well, we could see with great confidence that Jesus historically lived, that Jesus historically ministered for three years. It's not only recorded in the scriptures and validated as they're sent out 20 years later, but we also see it in historians, non-Christian historians, that testify to the fact that Jesus did walk the earth, that Jesus ministered in Jerusalem, in Galilee, in Judea for three years. The other impossible option is that Jesus is merely a moral teacher. He's merely a good teacher, merely a prophet. Jesus claimed to be God. If anyone claims to be God, they either are or they're something else, right? They can't be a good teacher. They either are or they're deranged or they're a liar, right? And so he could not be a good teacher. And that leads to the two improbable options. If you want to see these more in depth, you can listen to the sermon next week. Two improbable options is that Jesus is a lunatic. That Jesus indeed thought that he was God, but really wasn't. He had deceived himself. This, again, seems improbable because his teachings were amazing. His teachings are still transforming lives today. His teachings were, 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 were uh, brought They were adopted by the great philosophers and great teachers as these amazing truths. And so these don't seem to be the teachings of a madman. Then again, maybe Jesus is a liar. Maybe he thought, you know, maybe he thought he could trick people into thinking that he was God, that he had wicked intentions for this. And yet this too seems improbable because those that were closest to him, his family members, his disciples, those who saw him day in and day out, even if they didn't believe when Jesus was walking the earth, when he rose from the dead, they were convinced that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is who he said he was. And that is the inescapable option, that Jesus is who he claims to be, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate. The evidence is overwhelming when you look at the facts Even in this passage in verse 31, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, what else must Jesus do to prove that he is the Christ? What else must he do to prove that he is the son of God? The religious leaders that opposed him even admitted that Jesus healed a a man that was paralyzed, an invalid. And they were mad at him because he did it on the Sabbath, which he addresses in this passage. And so they, they knew he did miracles. They heard of how he fed the 5,000. Some of them had been at that occasion. They had heard how Jesus turned water into wine, how he had healed an official son. And so they knew all of these things. 
And yet they rejected Jesus as a Christ. And the question is, why? If they, if they knew that Jesus did all these things and, and had these amazing teachings, how could they reject him? You know, some people would say, you know, I would believe in God. I would believe in Jesus if he would just show himself to me. If, if he'd show up and do a miracle in my life, God, if you do this one thing, then I'll believe in you, right? Well, Jesus did all of these things. And they still didn't believe. And so the question is, why? And what we see is that there is a deeper heart issue for why people do not trust in Christ. It is not merely because there is not enough evidence, although sometimes it is as we share the good news of Christ with others. But many times we know the evidence and yet we rebel against it. Why? Well, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, while a lack of evidence can destroy faith, faith, an abundance of evidence cannot create faith. Do you hear that? While a lack of evidence can destroy faith, an abundance of evidence cannot create faith. So let's, let's tease that out a little bit. You know, how many of you here, and, and it's funny because Preston came up and was talking to me about this just before the sermon. How many of you here drink soda? Anyone like once a month or more or less than that? All right. Now, how many of you think soda is bad for you? All right. All, all of you believe it's bad, and yet you still drink it. You see, there is a difference. We know the evidence. We know that it's not good for us, but we don't submit our lives to that truth, do we? We don't follow it. Or you could do that with a whole host of things. You could do that with bacon. It's delicious. <laughs> it makes for great parties. But it's probably not good for you, right? We're told, floss your teeth every day. Sorry, Kathy Fralick. I don't floss my teeth every day. We now have Floss Fridays to remember ourselves. Floss your teeth on Fridays. It's actually on my Google Calendar, and I get a text message about 6.30 Friday night. Today is Floss Fridays. Floss your teeth, right? Maybe for some of you it's bathing. I hope not, but... There are things that intellectually we know are bad for us, but we don't submit our lives to that truth. Or things that we know that are good for us, but we don't submit ourselves to that truth for a whole host of reasons. I'm convinced that the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders at this Feast of Booths, knew deep down inside that what Jesus was doing, they could not deny. The evidence was too overwhelming. But they did not want to submit their lives to him. And the major reason for that was because of the things that Jesus was claiming. And so we're going to look at that. That continues the the sermon that I started last week. So let's look at the claims of Jesus. There are two major claims of Jesus in this passage. The first is that Jesus proclaimed his authority. Look with me in verse 14 again. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus never had any formal training. He never studied under a rabbi. He was never a disciple of a rabbi like these guys were. And so they were astounded at his teaching. They were astounding at his authority. And they wondered, how did Jesus get this authority to teach? It continues in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
typically the rabbis would get up in the talk and they'd, they'd start quoting other rabbis. They'd say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and then they would expound on it. Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they'd expound on it. You know, kind of like I just said, Tim Keller says this, and then expound on it, right? Jesus says, my teaching doesn't come from any human source. My teaching comes from God. It, is a, it has a heavenly, a divine authority to it. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that the source of the truth that we get adds validity to it, gives it authority. You know, if I told you that Brett Favre is coming back, right? That Brett Favre is coming back, that he's going to be the the quarterback of the Packers, you'd probably say, what, really? Where did you hear that? And I said, I heard it from this, this website called The Onion, right? Which is a fictitious newspaper. Or if I said that I heard it from you know, my buddy down the street, you'd probably be really skeptical. But if I said, ESPN reported this, you would say, wow. And it, to be honest, it's not that far stretch of a truth, is it, that he'd come back again? But you say, wow, I can't believe it. And you go on ESPN and you check out, Favre is coming back. You see, the source of the information gives it authority, gives it reliability. And so Jesus says, my authority doesn't come from another man. The authority of my teaching comes from God himself. This is extremely relevant today. You see, you are surrounded by hundreds of preachers, not just one, hundreds of preachers, hundreds of pulpits. Music is a pulpit. Your workplace is a pulpit. TV is a pulpit. All of them are preaching to you saying, this is true. This is true. This is true. If you ever see political campaigns, they say, this is true. And the problem is, is that they start contradicting each other. And so the question is, is there any ultimate truth? Is there anyone who knows truth that can, that can help us sort out what is true and what is not? If we are looking for an authority on truth, if we're looking for ultimate truth, wouldn't it have to come from God? Wouldn't God be the one that holds the ultimate truth, that discerns all of the the preaching that we hear every single day? God is the source of ultimate truth. And we don't need to run away from culture because of that, but we need to engage culture filter culture through the truths that we find in the word of God and speak truth into it, the beauty of God's truth. And so Jesus claims that his teaching has authority. It has authority over the religious leaders. But Jesus goes further. Verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This is a small word that we might skip over. But in verse 29, Jesus doesn't say, I was sent by God. He said, I was sent from God. You see, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, even John the Baptist was sent by God. But there is only one who was sent from God. Jesus is claiming to be pre-existent from his life on earth, that he has eternal life, that he has has always lived, he has always existed, and he is sent from God because he is God. And therefore, he has not only authority over teaching and over truth, but he has authority over our lives. Now, this frustrates the religious leaders. Heck, this frustrates us, doesn't it? I don't like people telling me 
what to do. I don't like people telling me when I'm right or wrong. I don't like people trying to control me. And yet Jesus claims authority over our life. You know, we want to be the captains of our life, don't we? We want to be the God of our life. We want to make all the decisions when it comes to our time, to our resources, to our talents, how we spend our days, our minutes, our hours. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to be the captain of our ship. We want to set the direction. And we don't want anyone to make us change course. There's a story of a captain of a ship. It was dark out. It was foggy. And he saw in the distance some lights. And so he sent a message. It went like this. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a reply came back that said, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, as you can imagine, the captain was angered at this. And so he replied again. And he said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon the response came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman, third class. Immediately, captain sent a third message, knowing that it would evoke fear in the other person. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. To which the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Are you trying to guide your life? Are you trying to direct every aspect of your life? Are you trying to rebel against God? Convince him that your way is the best way? Do you have a plan for your life? And no matter what God says, no matter what God does, you're not changing? What Jesus tells us is that if you submit to my authority... You will find the way of life. But if you want to go down your own paths, go down your own plans, your life will lead to destruction. And so we can choose to ignore Jesus, which leads to a shipwreck, or we can alter our course to the direction that God calls us because he has supreme authority in our lives. So the first reason that we see here, that the first claim that Jesus makes is that he has authority over our lives. Again, a hard thing to submit ourselves to, a hard thing for the Jewish leaders to commit to submit themselves to. The second thing that we see Jesus proclaiming is that not only does he have authority, but he proclaims man's depravity. Look in verse 7 with me. It says, the world cannot hate you. This is Jesus talking to his brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus because of his audacious claims that we are not good people. You see, Jesus's vantage point on humanity is much different than our vantage point. His theology of humanity is much different than ours. His lines up with God's theology about humanity. You know, we think we are all pretty good people. We compare ourselves to one another, say, you know what, I'm pretty well off. You know, if you were to correlate to height, we would say, you know, some people that are really moral, really good, they're like seven feet tall, Right? And then those that are, that, are, that are really corrupt, that are really wicked, that do bad things, they're like three feet tall. And so, you know, we walk down the street and we see these moral giants and we say, wow, those are great people. And, and then we see these little people and we say, shame on them. They should be more like us. And then we, we make ourselves feel okay by that, by comparing ourselves to other people. But God's vantage point is different than our vantage point. God isn't looking at street level. God is looking from the heavens. If you've ever been on top of the Sears Tower or a tall building, you look down 
And you may see a seven-foot person, you may see a three-foot person, but the difference is insignificant because they're all little dots moving around. They're all little ants moving around. God has such a high standard of holiness and perfection that when he looks down on us, he sees none of us reach to his holiness. None of us are good enough or moral enough to attain it. And so Jesus goes on to press the religious leaders on this issue. Verse 19, he says, has not Moses given you the law? Uh, The Jewish leaders were proud of the law. They were experts in the law. They memorized the law. They persecuted by the law. They were trying to persecute Jesus by the law for healing on the Sabbath. And he says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus is saying, you proclaim that you uphold the law. You find life in the law, but you yourself are law breakers. This angered them. This invigorated their passion to seize Jesus, to kill Jesus, because he was undercutting the very foundation that they had built their life on. He was wiping out the house of cards. They they have constructed so carefully with so much hard work to live this moralistic, obedient lifestyle that would be pleasing to God and appealing to others. And he shoots at their knees. He wipes out the chair from underneath them. And he says, you claim that the law is your hope. You claim that you're good enough to gain approval from God. I tell you that you are lawbreakers. And the proof of it is that you are trying to kill me, someone who is innocent. You are murderers in your heart. Where do you look for acceptance? You know, these these men, these the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders look to the law to find their acceptance and approval before God and before others. Where do you look? Maybe it's a moralistic lifestyle. Maybe it's someplace else. You know, a a good indication of this, a potential indication of this is, is where are you defensive? What are places in your life where when people start asking you questions about this, you just, you just have all of these reasons why you're doing okay. You know, a couple months ago, a friend of mine was concerned about some additional responsibility I was going to take on, and he was asking me about it. He was, he was lovingly uh, confronting me, saying, I'm not sure this is good for you or for your family. And to me, I was offended by it at first. I thought, who's this guy to question how I arrange my schedule? Who is this guy to question how I lead my family? I mean, his family isn't perfect, right? Why would he question me on this? I got defensive. Why? Because I rest on having a good family to have value. That if I'm a failure, if I'm a failure as a father, if I'm a failure as a dad, then I am a complete failure in all of life. That I'm worth nothing. That my value is gone. And so the question is, where do you get defensive? Let me just stereotype a little bit here. Men, if someone comes to you and they critique your work, or they question your work ethic, are you thankful that they come to you? Or do the gloves come off? Ladies, if, if, if this is personal, all right, if, if someone says, man, you know, they're kind of gaining some weight, it's personal, right? And, and they're concerned about your health, and they come to you and they say, I love you, I care for you, I'm concerned about you, I want to help you, are you thankful? <laughs> or is it like the second coming of the exorcist? Here's the point of it. 
The reason why maybe you're defensive in those situations is because that's exactly where you find your value. That's exactly where you find your hope. That's exactly where you find your identity. See, the, 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 the hard news of the gospel is that you cannot gain God's acceptance by your, by your academic success. You cannot gain God's approval through your career success. You can't gain it through attractiveness, through being a good dad or a bad dad. You cannot gain it through any of those things. See, God gives us another foundation to rest upon for his approval and for his acceptance. It's a foundation outside of ourselves, a foundation not contingent on ourselves. See, Christ came and he was the perfect law keeper. Even though we are lawbreakers, he was the perfect law keeper. And he went to the cross and he took on our rebellion against God, our rebellion against God's law. And he paid for that rebellion, but gave us his righteousness his goodness, that we could be approved before God. And so the good news is we don't have to live up to some standard for God to love us. Christ has done it on our behalf. We don't have to have the approval of everyone around us because we have the approval of God through Jesus Christ. And so we see here that the religious leaders are upset because Jesus claims authority over their teaching, over their life. But then Jesus goes on to proclaim good news. We see this in the cry of Jesus. The Feast of Booths was a week-long festival. And it was a commemoration, a reminder of how God had provided for his people in the wilderness. How he had provided food for them, water for them. It also happened at the end of the harvest festival. So it was also a reminder of God's ongoing provision for the people of God. Well, at the end of the feast, the grand finale, the last day, the, the priests would go outside the city and they'd go to the pool of Siloam and they would fill up these golden water jars and they would bring them back into the city and there would be trumpets blaring, people singing hymns. It would have been a, a fantastic, a spectacle to see. And they would come in and they would march around the altar and then finally they would, in, in a grand finale, they would pour this water out on the, on the altar as a remembrance of God's provision for a thirsty people wandering in the wilderness. And it is in this context, in this context, that Jesus says this in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to me. How egocentric is this guy? Come to me, he says, and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus cries out to the people because this is the last day of the feast. Tomorrow they are going home. There is an urgency in his message. He says, come and drink. Come and drink. There's this qualifier. If you are thirsty, thirsty for anything, not not necessarily thirsty for God or thirsty for righteousness. If you're thirsty for anything, if you're thirsty for love, if you're thirsty for compassion, if you're thirsty for comfort, for connection, if you are thirsty, if your soul is thirsty, he says, come. And drink. What does it mean to drink from Jesus? Well, he goes on to tell us. He says in verse 38, whoever believes in me. I love that Jesus uses these visible expressions of faith. Like eating bread is is an expression of faith. Drinking water is an expression of faith. It's a reminder to us 
that believing in Jesus is not merely this intellectual exercise, but it is consuming him. It is working him through your body, letting him take over that he might consume you. Jesus goes on and he, said, and he makes this promise. He says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this commentary in verse 39. He says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There are two glorious truths here. And I will try to end with this because I'm running long. The first is this, is that the Holy Spirit gives us soul satisfaction. You know, it fills our lives. It satisfies our longings. If you thirst for love, Jesus says, come and drink, and you will know a love that surpasses all understanding. If you thirst for a connection, Jesus says, come and drink, and you'll be connected to the God of the universe. If you thirst thirst for riches, Jesus says, come and drink, and you'll be my co-heir with all the riches of heaven at your disposal. Jesus says, if you are thirsty for anything, come and drink and you will find soul satisfaction in me. The second truth that we see in this is that the spirit not only satisfies our soul, the spirit overflows. He says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus said, you know, if you are hungry or thirsty, come and eat, come and drink. He's saying, it it will overflow out of you. There will be so much abundance of blessing poured out upon of you upon you, that it will overflow out of you. It's like a Dixie cup below Niagara Falls. God's blessings pour into you, but then they also pour out to those around you. In the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, there's a little girl named Jill. She's alone. She's lost in the woods and she's scared and she is desperately thirsty. She finally finds a stream, but between her and the stream is Aslan, the 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 lion, the the Christ figure. And Aslan says to her, are you thirsty? And she says, I'm dying of thirst. He says, then drink. She responds, may I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? And then Aslan responds with just a growl. And she says to him, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come and drink? And Aslan responds, I make no such promise. Now, Jill was so thirsty that she inched closer to the lion and to the stream. And she asked, do you eat girls? Aslan responded, I have swallowed up, consumed girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. He didn't say it boasting. He just said it as a matter of fact. And then Jill responds saying, I dare not come and drink. The lion responds, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And Aslan responds, there is no other stream. Jesus Christ says, I am the provision from God, not for thirsty stomachs, but for thirsty souls. He says, I am the Christ. I am not a liar. I am not a lunatic. I am Lord. You need me. You are thirsty. Come and drink. 
and be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that in our nature, we want to rebel against you. We want to rebel against your authority. We want to be captain of our own ship. We want to do our own things, God. We don't want to submit to your will because we know that it is sacrificial. And yet it is the way of life, Lord. God, I pray for those here who are thirsty, that we will come and that we will drink of the living waters, that we will never be thirsty again. And from inside of us will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life that will flow over, that we will become your agents of redemption in this city, that we as people have known the comfort of God will go and comfort others, that we as people who know what it means to be loved unconditionally would go and love those unconditionally around us. Lord Jesus, change us, transform us. Show us the beauty of your love for us, that we are accepted and approved, not by anything that we do, but simply by what Christ has done for us. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.